You know, I really, I just love it when the underdog wins, don't you? Right? You know, when the, the weaker party, the, the little fellow, the, the outsider, you know, comes from, from behind and achieves an amazing victory. And I think everybody does. We can agree on that, right? In fact, the notion of an underdog winning is almost an American tradition. We see it all over the place. It's part of our country's DNA. Just like the revolutionary war battle of Valcor Island that I'm going to tell you about this morning. It took place 240 years ago this week, in October of 1776, just after the Revolutionary War had begun, when a flotilla of British warships sailed down the Hudson River with enough firepower and enough fighting men to blow New England all the way back to Old England. And our founding fathers, all they could do was just look on in terror because we had no navy of our own yet. Now, fortunately, we were blessed with a very headstrong general by the name of Benedict Arnold, who, despite his later betrayal, was basically early America's version of Rambo at the time. I mean, he was a tough, despite the powdered wig, he was a tough guy. And when Arnold saw the Brits coming, he realized that he was up against incredible odds. Because that flotilla that I told you about consisted of 25 very large, well-armed ships, 700 sailors, 2,000 redcoats, or British regular army, and Hessian mercenaries on top of that, all equipped with the best training that the British Empire could provide. Now, Benedict Arnold, on the other hand, was at a severe disadvantage because, first of all, he was a general and not an admiral. And he walked into this battle with about as many warships and as many hours logged in naval battle as Miss Betty, who just sang for us, right? But Benedict Arnold did exactly what you'd expect an underdog to do. He stepped out in faith, and he built an ad hoc navy out of whatever fishing boats and driftwood he could come up with. So basically, if it could float, and it could remain floating with a cannon strapped to it, it became part of our very first U.S. Navy. Now, sadly, in the course of the engagement, he lost almost every single one of his vessels. But the general had an ace up his sleeve. Because during the night, he slipped a few boats that he did have left, boats that were smaller and faster than the enemy's, past those big British gunboats, which forced the British fleet on a wild goose chase after him down the Hudson River Valley. Where, when the Brits eventually caught up with him, they started sinking what was left of those poor little ships that he had snuck out in the night. But when they did, they were surprised to see that Arnold didn't care. And they were probably even more surprised when he burned the last few ships himself, dusted off his hands, and declared victory over the enemy, having completely outfoxed them, because that was his ploy all along, was to stall them just long enough that it was too late in the year for the British to complete their invasion plans because of the winter weather. And they were forced to retreat all the way back to Canada until the following year leaving historians to acknowledge that had it not been for Benedict Arnold's bold move, the American Revolution could very possibly have ended right then with the British invasion of the Hudson River Valley. But the delay he caused gave us enough time to arm the additional front and stabilize our our northern defenses. Now, I think that's a pretty amazing story of overcoming some pretty incredible odds, don't you? And today, Jesus is going to tell us 
a story of victory against almost insurmountable odds, too, in a parable from our lectionary readings. If you've been following along, we're in the Gospel of Luke. And it's a story that's not on a grand scale like the Battle of Valcor Island. It's about a single woman, a widow, facing some really pretty tough odds and who is without a doubt the underdog in the story, as you're going to see. So we're in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, Give me justice in my dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. And then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth? who have faith. So the heroine in our story seems like a pretty tough and independent lady, doesn't she? And she's not only the underdog, she's a bulldog, right? She grabs a hold of what she wants and she won't let go. She's relentless. And she says to this callous judge, come on, judge, do the right thing. Enforce the law. Grant me justice against my opponent. And if you notice, she doesn't even bother to say please, did she? Right? If it pleased the court, right? No, she just said, come on, you got to do this. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what she needed justice for, but the fact that she's a widow is a really excellent clue here because widows in the first century world had very few rights, and this woman would have been no exception. Because, you see, any inheritance that she would have had coming to her from her husband would go primarily to their eldest son. And if she didn't have any sons, the estate would pass to her husband's eldest brother. And I know that doesn't seem fair, right, by today's standards, but that's just the way it was. So whatever she was to receive from her late husband's estate would have to come to her, filtered through either her son or her brother-in-law. Everybody love their brother-in-law? And evidently, the one who was holding the purse strings was holding out on her. And that's against Jewish law because although... A widow doesn't inherit her husband's estate. She is entitled to her full living expenses for the rest of her life or until she remarries. But this poor widow was evidently getting the short end of the stick. So her only response was to seek justice in the courts. Now, unfortunately, the story that Jesus is telling, she comes up against a judge who, as Jesus said, neither feared God or had respect for people. And that's not a way of saying that he was impartial like all judges should be. Jesus is telling us that this judge was without compassion. And he didn't really care whether this widow or anybody else for that matter ever got what was coming to them. He had no regard for people. And he had no regard for God and his holy laws. He was interested in one person and one person only, and that was himself. But in this case, he was up against someone who was a whole lot stronger than he was. She may have been the underdog. She may have been a woman, but she was tough as nails. And Jesus said that she keeps coming and she keeps coming and she keeps coming. 
kind of like, you know, that little fly that circles around the picnic table and it drives you crazy because you can't either seem to catch it or kill it and it's everywhere you look, on everything. Now, this judge is able to hold out for a while, but realizing that she's going to not leave him alone until he settles her case, he finally relents so that she won't wear me out with this continual coming, he says. So she won't wear me out. And, you know, I think it was, it was in the study for this, I think it was really interesting and funny that the word that Jesus uses when he says that she's going to wear me out is a, a compound Greek word that means to hit under the eye like a boxer would. It means to beat somebody black and blue or, or the other side meaning is to bully or annoy someone into compliance. Right? So who says there's no humor in the Bible, right? Jesus is, Jesus is telling this really important parable and he uses a boxing metaphor to get it across, right? He's going to give him a black eye. I mean, he literally means, the judge is saying, if I don't do something, this woman is going to drive me nuts. She's going to give me a black eye. She's going to give me an emotional beatdown. She's going to damage my reputation. So he's still thinking of himself. Right? Don't get me wrong, he wasn't just eventually moved by concern for this poor widow. He's just more concerned about his image and his peace of mind than he is about doing what's right. And although that imagery is kind of funny, the subject matter is very serious. And so is the point that Jesus is trying to make with this parable. And you know, as we've talked about before, to deal with Scripture seriously and to understand Jesus' message, we also have to understand the context of where he is, what he's doing, and why he tells the story. So remember, as we've been following along, Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing. And remember, just last week, we saw him heal ten lepers, right? And that's a bigger deal than you might realize. And it's got implications that go far beyond just providing a physical cure for those men. So I want to back up just a little bit and give you some background so you can see how this all fits together in the story. Now, just by way of background, sometime prior to Jesus' birth, the ancient Jewish rabbis had divided the working of miracles into two categories. The first category were miracles that could be performed by anyone that God gave the power to do them like the Old Testament prophets. That's the first one. The second category was called Messianic miracles. And those were miracles that only the Messiah would perform when he came to show that he was the genuine article. And here's what they are. This is the four Messianic miracles. The first one is healing a man born blind. The second one is casting out a demon that caused a person to be a deaf mute. The third one is raising a person who had been dead for longer than three days because evidently under three days was no big deal. And who wants to guess what the fourth miracle was? Cleansing from leprosy, right? Healing a leper. Because from the time that the Torah was completed until Jesus' day, there was not a record of any Jew who had ever been healed from leprosy. The only exception is Moses' sister Miriam. Now the book of 2 Kings does tell us that the prophet Elisha healed a man named Naaman from leprosy, But he was a Syrian Gentile, not a Jew. So from the time of Moses, that's what I want you to see, from the time of Moses until the ministry of Jesus, there has never been a case of a Jewish leper being healed. And now last week we saw that there were nine lepers that were Jewish and one that was a Samaritan. So ten lepers healed all at once. That's a pretty big deal. And when Jesus performed messianic miracles like this, he would have had a huge reaction and impact on the crowd but not only among the people, but also among the religious leaders 
who were expecting Jesus to restore the kingdom. And so they start coming to see him and they start coming to ask him questions. And that's what leads up to our story today because just prior to the parable of the persistent widow, the Jewish leaders, after seeing this miracle of 10 lepers being healed, come to Jesus with a question. So this is where we back up a little bit back into Luke chapter 17. So now keep in mind the leaders have seen this amazing miracle and they come to Jesus and the word says, one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? They've seen these messianic miracles. They wonder, when, when is this going to start? Jesus replied, when the Son of Man returns, it'll be like in the days of Noah. In those days, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings. Right up to the time Noah entered the boat. And the flood came and destroyed them all. And the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. When people went about their daily business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building, until the morning Lot left Sodom. And then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be business as usual right up to the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a person out on the deck of the roof must not go down to the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return home. That night, two people will be asleep in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Where will this happen, Lord, the disciples asked. Jesus replied, just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs will indicate that the end is near. And I want you to see how this all fits together in the message today, because Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, and he's talking to his followers about the end of the age. And in fact, he's been telling them some pretty scary stuff, right? That's pretty alarming. He said it'll be like the days of the great flood or like the destruction of Sodom on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And those frightened disciples look at Jesus and they say, Lord, where is this going to happen? Where is this going to happen? And Jesus looks at them and says, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. And somehow I don't think that really made them feel any better. But vultures flock around dead things. So spiritually speaking, justice and judgment would be centered on the place where the most guilt and wickedness were were coming from. And the thoughts of the disciples had to immediately turn to Jerusalem, where the greatest concentration of the nation's corruption played out day after day in the lives of the people and of the priests. And it's right on the heels of Jesus telling this story and and this this parable about what's going to happen when he returns, right on the heels of these remarks, that Jesus tells the parable of this persistent widow and this unjust judge. And when Luke records it for us, he didn't want to risk the fact that we might misunderstand what he's talking about. So he tells us at the beginning what the story is going to be about and what it means. Right? We read in, in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. Because he's already told them what it's going to be like when the end comes, and they're worried and they're frightened. And Jesus said, I don't want you to be disheartened. I don't want you to give up. I'm going to give you a story to remember. I'm going to give you a story so you won't lose heart. Some versions say so you won't faint. But to me, that sounds like Jesus is trying to tell the disciples and us that we should be holding on to faith and not giving in to fear. We should be holding on to faith and not giving in to fear. And I think we can all relate to that, can't we? Because it can be really easy to give in to fear. But Jesus doesn't want that to happen to his disciples and he doesn't want it to happen to you and me today. 
And I know that he feels the same way about the people of the first century. That's why he had Luke write this parable to his congregation, to his flock. Because that was Luke's concern too. And he's telling the story and providing the interpretation of it so his readers, his congregation, won't lose heart. Because here they are, they're praying and praying and asking for God's kingdom to come just like we do every Sunday. And they're praying that all of Jesus' promises would come to pass before their eyes, right? In their lifetime, right? In their lifetime. But instead, they receive persecution and hardship and suffering. And they're wondering why. And all of these things added together could really make you lose heart and start to eat away at your faith, couldn't it? Maybe that's happening to someone here today. And maybe you're, you're asking the same questions about our country or the state of the election that we're in. Maybe you're asking questions about your life or your health or about the way the world is going. And you start to doubt that maybe God is really paying any attention at all to your needs and ignoring your prayers. And you think, wouldn't it be nice if we could just catch a glimpse of God working somewhere in all of this so we don't lose heart? And so Jesus gave the disciples and us a really bold illustration. And when you're reading through it, this is where Jesus' parable could get confusing if you don't pay close attention to the text because I don't want you to miss the fact Jesus is not using the judge in the story as a comparison to God, but as a contrast. Because he wants us to see that if a ruthless, insensitive, hard-hearted judge will finally hear the case and give justice to a persistent widow, how much more can we believe and trust that a God who cares for us has our best interests at heart? Who will hear our prayers if we're willing to keep on praying? And Jesus doesn't mean that like the widow, we have to pester God into being compassionate toward us. He doesn't mean we have to beg him for the things that we need. He's not saying we're supposed to annoy God with our prayers until he finally listens and gives us what we want so we'll shut up and go away. That's not what he's trying to tell us. He's not trying to tell us that our concerns are a bother to God, but rather through our persistent prayer and constant desire to be in his presence that we open our hearts and our minds to receive the care and compassion that God wants to give us by staying in his presence. Because the truth is, he's waiting to hear from us and not the other way around. God is waiting to hear from us, not the other way around. Now, you've probably noticed over the past year, some changes in your, your bulletin that you get every week, right? And one of the first changes that I asked Mary to make in the office was to take out the word invocation and replace it with what the Book of Common Worship calls the prayer of the day. And the reason is because we can't and don't need to invoke God. He's always present. He's always watching us. He's always in the midst of his people. It is us who need to have our attention grabbed because we're the ones who get distracted by the things of the world, not God. Because you see, genuine prayer is not invoking or coercing or, or coaxing like this widow had to do with the judge, but simply submitting to God and admitting our weakness, acknowledging his greatness, and then trusting completely in his goodness. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul told us, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. 
And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And he said this because prayer is our direct communication with heaven. It's the unbroken line between earth and the Father. And when we pray, we're brought into God's presence and we are in touch with God himself. And we have to persistently and consistently make prayer like that a priority. And that's not always very easy to do, is it? And you probably felt like that at times, like maybe you're just too busy to pray. Anybody ever felt like that? But that's not the attitude God wants us to have. You know, in Sunday school class, I think it was two or maybe three weeks ago, I shared a quote from my hero, Martin Luther, who I talk about all the time. And when he was asked what his plans were for the following day, he answered the person who asked him, he said, my plans for tomorrow are to work from early until late. He said, in fact, I have so much to do that I shall pray for the first three hours. He said, I have so much to do tomorrow, I'm going to pray for the first three hours. Now, if anyone was busy, it was Martin Luther, right? He was leading a spiritual revolution. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was acting as a pastor. He was translating the Bible into German. He was a dad. He was a husband. He was incredibly, overwhelmingly busy, and his calendar was chocked full. And he makes me look like a lazy person that sleeps all day, right? He does 10 times the things that I could ever imagine doing. But in spite of his incredible workload, he found it absolutely necessary to pray before he jumped into his day and to pray for three hours. He knew he had to meet with God before he met with the cares of the day. He knew he wouldn't dive into his day before he was refreshed by the Lord. And he knew that he couldn't serve God well without first seeking God's help. Or think for a minute about the example of our Lord Jesus. Right? If he needed to take time alone to pray, don't you think we do? Right? He's an even greater example of this, of the necessity of prayer. Because he was given an incredible task. He was given the task of being our Savior. And if you read through the Scripture, he was constantly swamped with people and ministry opportunities, and he's constantly being pressed on every side by people in need, and yet he always carved out time to be alone with the Father. We read in the Word, sometime he prayed all through the night. He would actually set aside opportunities to do ministry with people so he could spend more time face-to-face with the Father. And we need to follow that example so that we can be effective in whatever God is calling us to do. So that we can be recharged in prayer so that we can do whatever God is calling us to do in his kingdom. And more importantly, so that when Christ returns, we're not going to be ashamed. So that we can answer that question that Jesus asked at the end of that parable when he said, when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? When the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? And Jesus wants to know if he's going to find believers who are faithfully praying because prayer is the permanent occupation of every single believer. When Christ returns, will we be praying? Will he find us praying? Will we be among those who are calling out in faith day and night that his kingdom would come? Or will he find us asleep? You know, someone has once said, when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. I like that quote. When we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. Because the power of prayer does not flow from us. It's not special words we say. 
It's not a special way we say them. It's not a certain time of day. It's not whether we sit or whether we kneel. But the power of prayer comes from the omnipotent one who hears our prayers and answers, just like we've seen in this fellowship over and over again. Answered prayer. Miracles. Just like Johnny's miracle when they went up to bring their little girl back down with them. Right? Incredible miracle. He said he, he, he went into the courtroom and he was concerned that things might not go the way that they had planned. And he said the judge ruled in their favor so quickly that they looked at each other and said, did that really happen? Right? And they went with all that fear and all that worry. And God answered so miraculously it was over and done before they realized it. Or think of, think of Dick Jordan. The doctor had him scared to death that his body was riddled with cancer. Now he's healed. What an incredible God we serve. It was a very prominent Christian bishop and teacher from the 4th century named John Chrysostom who wrote a really beautiful passage on persistent and faithful prayer when it's put into God's hands. And I want to share it with you because I love this reading. He says, Prayer is an all-sufficient panoply. It's a treasure undiminished. Prayer is a mind that's never exhausted. Prayer is a sky unobscured by the clouds. It's a heaven unruffled by a storm. Prayer is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It's bridled the rage of lions and hushed anarchy to rest. Prayer has extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons. Prayer has burst the chains of death and expanded the gates of heaven. Prayer has assuaged diseases, repelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction. Prayer has stayed the course of the sun and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Pretty eloquent words, aren't they? And in all of its expressions, whether it's halting and short little prayers that you breathe out to God or whether it's beautiful, well-structured phrases, prayer is simply a conversation with our God. Does God need our prayers to accomplish all of those things in the world? No. Does he need us to pray to bring about his will? No. But he has given us the gift of prayer as part of his plan for the accomplishment of his will and the extension of his kingdom until Christ returns. And he has blessed you and I to be a part of that through the gift of prayer. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you so much that you are willing to hear from us, Lord, that you are willing to receive our prayers and and to work through them. We thank you, Father, that you've told us in your word that not only that, but that you inhabit the praise of your people. So, Lord, we come before you now in, in praise. We come before you in adoration. We come before you humbly, Father, so grateful for all that you were willing to do for us, so thankful for all the gifts that you have given us, and so thankful especially for your Son, our Lord Jesus in whose name we pray and in whose salvation we trust. Amen.